Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones is underway, and you can stay up to date with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre-cappable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, our YouTube channel has tons of other Game of Thrones related content, which you can find at youtube.com slash the ringer. And for even more Thrones coverage, head over to the ringer.com. Welcome. To Game of Thrones Precapables, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This is the podcast where we preview the Thrones episode to come. And today, battle is here as we break down what to expect in Season 8, Episode 3. I'm Zach Cram, and joining me in the crypts, because that's where it's safest. No, seriously, it's safe down there. We promise nothing bad can possibly happen to you down in the crypts. It's Riley McAtee. Riley. Zach, are you ready for the busiest weekend in Ringer history? Let's go. Let's dive right in to next on Game of Thrones. So as we run down this episode, break down the teaser trailer we saw at the end of last week, let's first start with some logistics. This episode is going to be directed by Miguel Sapochnik, who in previous Thrones iterations has done Hard Home. He's done Battle of the Bastards. He's done Winds of Winter, which was the phenomenal season six finale. So he has experience with these big battles. Uh, This episode will reportedly be the longest the show will ever air at 82 minutes. And it is also being advertised as the longest battle segment in TV or film history, even longer than Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So just those logistics rally, what expectation does that give you for this week? I feel like they've just built it up so much. Obviously, going to have a big battle you know we've been expecting that for weeks but they've also kind of set the bar really high for themselves yeah and specifically with Sapochnik's previous episodes he talked a lot in sort of the preseason profiles at places like Entertainment Weekly about all the innovation that went into this battle so I'm expecting to see even new imaginative things that we haven't seen in these previous episodes Let's dive in and maybe try to make some predictions about what we're going to see. The first quote we get in the trailer, we get, uh, I think, some more vague platitudes this week than we did last week. We get Sansa saying first, the most heroic thing we can do now is look the truth in the face. John says the Night King is coming. And Daenerys says the dead are already here. What quote out of those three really stands out to you the most? I feel like this teaser as a whole is pretty boilerplate, but that last one from Daenerys, the dead are already here. When she says it to Jon, she kind of stresses already, and they're standing sort of up on a hill overlooking the battle, kind of a weird spot. Possibly they have the dragons there with them so that they can fly around or something. I'm not really sure, but the way that she puts that emphasis on already makes me think that Jon has relayed to her some kind of plan. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do that. And she's like, hey, it's too late. The dead are already here, John. We already have to go. So I'm not sure. Yeah, this strikes me as a signifier of like an, oh no, something unforeseen has gone terribly wrong moment. My pet theory, something we've talked about uh, before on this show, 
is what might happen in the crypts. And I think there was a lot of foreshadowing last episode. We'll get to some character deaths that were maybe foreshadowed, but the most overwhelming note was the number of times that a character referenced the crypts as being the safest place. Oh, we'll send the women and children to the crypts. Oh, you know, you should go to the crypts, Sam. You should go to the crypts tier and you'll be safer there. I don't think that will be the case. I wonder if the dead are already here is about the dead Starks whose skeletons reside in the crypts. Will they be reanimated and will that be this sort of horror element in this episode? It is shocking that nobody put together this idea that the Night King raises the dead. Maybe the place where all of the dead bodies are stored is not the safest place. Yeah, and it's foolish for none of them to think about that beforehand. But also, I think it's going to be really interesting to see like how the Night King's powers actually work in this respect. We haven't seen before necessarily like, is there a limit on how close he has to be to a dead body to reanimate them? And what state does the dead body have to be in? Can he only use fresh skeletons like we saw him rise at Hardhome? Or can they be, you know, thousands, hundreds of years old? We're going to, I think, explore some of those limits if this theory becomes correct. It seems like the whites usually have some meat on their bones. Like they need some muscle matter, it seems, to move around. I don't know if we've seen just kind of a total skeleton, like a like a Halloween-esque type thing happening. John says the Night King is coming in the trailer. And I think the idea behind this quote appearing in the trailer is, oh, we're going to get this big showdown with the Night King in this episode. But I don't know. I think this could be somewhat of a misdirection because we haven't seen any actual shots of the Night King in this battle. There are some theories floating around that maybe this is a diversion and he sends the bulk of his forces to Winterfell while engaging somewhere else. Bran certainly seems to think that the Night King will come after him in the Godswood as they made this plan last episode. But I don't know. I'm not convinced. Are you? I'm not convinced. I, I I think that he might be somewhere else and that this is just John being John. I mean, how many times has he basically said the Night King is coming? The showrunners have been so cagey about what we're going to see. And I think for the most part, that's a good thing. Like, I don't want spoilers for this episode. I'm glad that they haven't given away too much. And sure, we might be able to predict some character deaths and we might be able to predict some beats from this battle. But ultimately, I think it'll make for a more enjoyable experience Sunday night with the fact that we really are making these ill-informed conjectures because we just don't have that much firm information to rely on. Yeah, I think we're in store for some surprises, which is to say the trailer feels a little bit kind of exactly what you would expect for this, but there were a few very brief shots that were of interest to me. We already talked about how John and Daenerys are up on a hill kind of overlooking Winterfell on the battlefield, which you assume that they would have to get there by dragon because of how far away they are. So it'll be interesting to see if they take the dragons and really put them into full combat in this battle there is a brief snippet of someone on a dragon and we've kind of we've screenshotted it we brightened it up and it definitely looks to me like it's Drogon with Daenerys riding him Zach are you in agreement on that I don't know we'll get to this later I think how the dragons are used in this battle is one of the more interesting questions because In the battle plan meeting last episode, Davos says the dragon should give us an edge in the field. And John dissents saying they need to protect Bran, who will be the lure for the Night King and the Godswood. 
I wonder this next uh, image in the trailer that we found is interesting is John looking like he maybe is in the Godswood. Like we know where Brienne will be, for instance. We know where Davos will be, for instance. But they're more peripheral characters at this point in this battle. Where will the absolute central characters, John and Danny and the dragons, ultimately spend the most time? Will they have a set plan and stick to it? Will John do his thing where he sort of just runs around to wherever he's needed like he did at the Battle of Castle Black? And I don't know if this is an indication in the trailer, but it seems, well, I think we can guess that Theon's defense of Bran and the Godswood might not go so well, and then maybe John needs to fill in there. I would imagine that Theon is not the most reliable person that I would put there. Not that he'll like betray them, I just mean I don't think that he's necessarily the best warrior. And so we do have, there's one brief shot of John where he's kind of drawing a sword, and if you brighten it up, you can see a tree behind him. It doesn't look like the weirwood tree, but it looks like, you know, it's a tree. And there's no real trees right in the immediate vicinity outside of Winterfell, so we assume he's probably in the Godswood here. And so we kind of think probably the White Walkers have broken in and he needs to fight them. Yeah, and beyond that, what we've talked about, there really isn't much else to the trailer. We see Brienne shouting, stand your ground, as a presumably mass of whites approach. At least last episode, even if it's not going to give us much in the teaser, did give us an expectation of the battle plan. And we talked about this last week. I'm glad they did this because it will help us understand what the hero's goals are and if they're achieving them or not as the battle gets underway. So let's talk about this for a little, starting with the general question. Do you think the plan that acknowledges that they can't hold off the dead forever, they're severely outnumbered, and instead they want to lure the Night King using Bran as bait and try to kill all the dead at once via their ultimate creator, is a smart one. Do you think that makes sense? It, it doesn't sound to me like it'll necessarily work, but I can't think of a better way to do it, right? They are vastly outnumbered. They're not necessarily well-equipped to handle this, even with all the dragon glass and everything else. It feels like their best bet is to cut off the head. And so if Bran, for whatever reason, believes that the Night King will expose himself if they use him as bait, then I, I think that that is the way that you have to go. It makes sense to me. And I think it should hopefully produce entertaining viewing because one of the reasons that I think the battle beyond the wall last season faltered is it was all confined to just one spot. All of the defenders with John and Barrick and Tormund and everyone else were just in a small knot together. So there wasn't much variety. There wasn't much motion. It was hard to find forward momentum. Compare that to something like Hardhome, something like Blackwater, where even if the events were happening in close proximity to each other, you could go at Hardhome from the fence to the shelter, to the shoreline, to the mountains, and sort of zoom back and forth and get that forward momentum that way. So I think having the Godswood as one area, having the Crypts as another area, having these various areas of forward defense as another area will hopefully allow for really creative storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. You wrote a really good piece about this on the ringer.com about what can make this battle really good. And I think that with so many different characters in different locations around Winterfell, a, lo a place that we are intimately familiar with should make this a very compelling television. And based on the battle map we see beyond this plan with Bran at the Godswood, they have what looks like formidable defense in front of the castle. It looks from this map they show that the defense is generally split into three segments in the front of the castle. There's a left flank that has Northern and Vale soldiers commanded, as we know, by Brienne. There's a flank on the right that is made up of further Northern forces, and we don't know who's commanding over there. 
And then there's a large central component that looks to be full of Danny's soldiers in the east. There's the Dothraki, there's the Unsullied, and the left and right flanks look kind of angled to prevent the army of the dead from flanking them and encircling the castle. That's smart because the army of dead has so many numbers, you kind of need to force them into your own geography or else like they need to keep a tight formation as Brienne says last episode or else they'll be overrun. They can't have each person fighting five whites at a time. They need to keep everything contained. If you look at this map uh, that they showed in the last episode, there are two things that really stand out to me as well, which is there is one unmarked stone inside the castle walls that I believe just represents the crypts. And then there's another one off to its left inside the walls again that has a, a bear on it. And it's actually the sigil of House Mormont. And so we kind of think that Jorah will probably actually be out on the front lines, probably fighting with Daenerys' troops. And that that represents Lyanna and the, the Mormont forces, which we know are not numerous, small group. So I wonder if they are kind of the last line of defense inside the walls. Yeah, that's the question I have. I assume at some point the city gates are going to be overrun. So if Liana Mormont and her small band are the only group left inside the castle, or you know, if something happens in the crypts and chaos emerges, what happens if the dead infiltrate there? If your last line of defense is a 13-year-old, it, you might just be screwed. That's why I think it's so crucial for them to lure the Night King over to the Godswood where Bran and Theon, the dragons, possibly John, are all kind of waiting, which is a better plan. If they get into the area where it's Lyanna and the Crips, that, that'll be a problem. I'm excited to see the battle in the front of the castle. If you think about Danny's forces, we saw the Dothraki really in their element at the loot train attack last episode. It was an open field. They had a downhill area to attack the Lannister forces, and they romped. The Unsullied we haven't really seen so far. Ever since Danny acquired them in season three, they massacred the Masters in Astapor, which was great, but the Masters were also defenseless. Since then, Danny hasn't really been using them to their full potential. She used them as policemen, not soldiers in Marine, and they were butchered by the Sons of the Harpy accordingly. They attacked Casterly Rock, but that was as an offensive force against a weakly defended castle. The Unsullied became famous in history by defending a city in Essos called Kohor. And Kohor was facing down a Kalasar of 50,000 Dothraki, 25,000 of them fierce warriors with braids in their hair. And it was only 3,000 Unsullied coming to Kohor's defense. They stood outside the city walls in formation and successfully fended off 18 Dothraki charges until the Dothraki finally surrendered. That was how the Unsullied made their name. And now the numbers are kind of different. The Night King's army numbers more than 25,000. His soldiers are dead, not Dothraki riding on horses. But the general idea, I think, still holds. And this is how the Unsullied made their name. Let's see them do it for Danny. Let's prove why they're such a formidable fighting force and defend the castle like you know their ancestors did across the sea. Yeah, it's always been so weird to me that you have the Unsullied who have these long spears. They're sort of modeled like a Macedonian hoplite unit. So they should be at their strength fighting in formation. And yet they've been used in, you know, alleyways where they're like policemen kind of like really out of their element. And here we should see them against a horde kind of in their element. This will probably be the Unsullied at their peak. And it looks like the Unsullied and the Northerners they're working with have been working hard to construct 
architectural defenses too. We've seen trebuchets being tested. We saw one in the trailer last week. It looks like they've also built a bunch of stakes to try and force the whites into areas they're more comfortable with. And one shot from last episode that really intrigues me was Grey Worm in the yard overseeing what looks like a breakaway bridge that spans a trench. It wasn't broken. It looked like it was an intentional thing they're building that maybe as the whites try and swarm across, they snap that bridge in half and the whites all fall into the trench because then in the battle plan, they mention lighting the trench, presumably on fire. So I wonder if the plan is to kind of, as the dead overrun them, they fall back toward the unsullied, the whites swarm forward and all go into the trench and then they try and light them on fire to kill a bunch in one fell swoop. We've seen before at, you know, the Cave of the Three-Eyed Raven and other places that the whites do not deal with fire very well. Even a little bit of fire can really repel them. The problem will be the white walkers who basically fires just go out when they come near. They bring the cold. And it looked from that last shot in episode two that there could be dozens, maybe up to hundreds of white walkers at this battle. Yeah, we don't really know their number. The most we had ever seen at one point before was back in season four when the Night King like christens uh, Craster's son, and we see about a dozen of them arranged around this this altar, basically. But this looked like there were a whole lot of them. I think it's important to note that in this teaser, we haven't seen the undead and we haven't seen the White Walkers actually engaged in battle, so we don't know what the Night King's plan is at all. Is he just going to attack in force and send everyone forward because all of his troops are basically interchangeable? Or does he have something more planned as well? I think that's where the crypts become a central component of this battle and where it's so exciting. We kind of know one side's strategy partway, but we don't know the other side's strategy at all. So I think it's a good mix of surprises and expectations. Yeah, I definitely think we'll, there's some sort of wild card that we're not seeing yet that will come into play. We'll talk about that more in a second, but first we're going to go to a quick word from our sponsor, because Oreo has teamed up with Game of Thrones to create limited edition packaging and cookies embossed with the sigils of three remaining contending houses, as well as the Night King. We're going to pick a sigil and recap what happened to the house in this last episode, and this week we're going to talk about the Lannisters, because Cersei was absent, but Jaime and Tyrion were central characters in the goings-on at Winterfell. Yeah, Jamie made his case to Danny, John, and Sansa, and Brienne vouched for him, leading to him to be spared. And he then knighted Brienne. He's going to serve under Brienne. He's kind of coming fully into his character arc, which has been from villain to hero throughout this series. Tyrion, however, didn't fare so well because after Jamie revealed that Cersei was betraying them after their summit at the Dragon Pit last season, Danny publicly reprimanded him for misplaying his hand. No hand pun intended. And as Jamie makes amends with Bran at the Heart Tree after pushing him out of the tower years ago, Tyrion doesn't do so well. It's only with Jorah's plea to Danny that he is spared from potentially losing his job. Tyrion then seeks out warmth, seeks out a drink before the battle after the sun sets as they spend possibly their last night alive. As a jolly group of friends joins them, Jamie knights Brienne, as you said, Tyrion makes an interesting prediction. He says, I think we might make it out of here alive. And everyone guffaws, everyone laughs. Even Tyrion at points has resigned himself to dying at Winterfell, telling Jamie, if only father could see us now. And it seems like the brothers are finally back together again. But how long will that last? Thanks to Oreo, and head to Oreo.com to pledge your fealty to the house or Night King of your choice. And tune into Game of Thrones on Sundays on HBO. 
Everyone, including us, uh, is rightly focusing on the battle to come, but let's not let a key scene from last week's episode pass by undiscussed, which leads to our theory of the week, the next segment in our show. This week, the theory is when Bran was informing the battle committee about the Night King's plans, he didn't tell the whole truth about what the enemy wants. So last week, they talk about this idea to get the Night King to expose himself so that they can kill him and potentially destroy the entire undead army all at once. And of course, Jamie points out that if that's true, the Night King will never put himself in a vulnerable position like that. And Bran cuts in and he says, yes, he will. He'll come for me. He's tried before many times with many three-eyed ravens. And Sam asks, why? What does he want? And this feels like a huge moment. We should finally find out what the Night King's motivation is. And Bran answers, he wants an endless night. He wants to erase this world, and I am its memory. Sam kind of goes on from that. He's like, oh, yeah, that's what death is, isn't it? Forgetting, being forgotten. And they kind of just take Bran's explanation at face value and move on. That, well, of course, like, Bran is the world's memory, and the Night King wants to erase the world, so he wants to erase Bran. And obviously, he would expose himself to do this. But I think we have some questions about this. It's not quite so straightforward. Yeah, first, I think this was an encouraging sign. I've been beating the drum that we need to know a little bit more about the Night King's motivations for a while now, and this was a good step. And this is kind of a common trope in fantasy that the villain not only wants to obliterate life, but obliterate memory, too. It you know, shout out to all the Quillen games heads out there from the Pendragon series. But it really reminded me of The Giver, which is a book that a lot of people have probably read, which is about a dystopian society where basically one person in the community has the entirety of their collective memory of not only history, but of emotions, of color, of weather, uh, because this society has stripped all the rest of it away. And he has to essentially train a young boy to become his successor. That's what happened with the Three-Eyed Raven and Bran. And I think this is an interesting look into what it means for a society that doesn't have memory, that doesn't have a collective history. Sam gets at this a little in this scene, but not so much. And I know, Riley, you think there's a lot more questions raised than answered with this scene. Yeah, so I have a few, I have a few questions. First is, are we sure the Night King's motivation is erasing memories? Bran says he wants to erase this world. But, I mean, if he just kills everyone, that erases the world. It's not like he needs to run down to the Citadel and burn the libraries, too. That's not going to be his first priority. If you just turn everyone into whites, you've erased the world. Mission accomplished. My next question is, if all of this is true, why does the Night King need to come for Bran first? Couldn't he just wait and kill him later? There's no reason to prioritize the Three-Eyed Raven. And my third question is, why does the Night King need to expose himself to kill Bran? He could just send his army. He could just send all these White Walkers. There's no reason for the Night King to kill Bran, at least none that we've been presented with yet. So I think that there's more to this than what Bran has told us. Yeah, to that last point, that was an interesting idea to me. We did see the th Night King personally kill the Three-Eyed Raven in the door in Blood Raven's cave beyond the wall when Bran accidentally granted him access. And that was key because the only personal kills we've seen the Night King actually engage in are 
Viserion, but that was a long-range kill. He basically just threw his spear from however far away in the Thread Raven, which was up close and intimate. He walked up to him and slashed at him. That was the most we've seen from the Night King in that regard so far. So Bran's explanation here doesn't explain why that needs to be, but it does conform with it somewhat. I definitely think that if you rewatch that episode, it feels like Blood Raven, the first Thread Raven that we see, has a special connection with the Night King. And I think that Bran hasn't fully laid that out. So I think that the Night King does want to kill Bran specifically. I think Bran is being truthful about that. And I do think the Night King wants to bring an endless night and erase the world, exactly what Bran has said. And I do think that Bran is the world's memory, but I don't think that erasing the world and bringing the endless night and being the world's memory are specifically related. If you look at how Bran even says it, he says, quote, the Night King wants to erase this world and I am its memory. He doesn't say he wants to erase this world and he wants to erase its memory, which is me. He kind of positions the two ideas next to each other, but doesn't strictly link them together. So it feels like it's a way of Bran being truthful, but not explaining the full thing. And as I think all of this through, I remember Bran's time travel back to the Tower of Joy when he shouted at Ned and Ned turned around obviously with Hodor when the the Hold the Door episode happened. I think that Bran's ability to time travel is going to come back in this season in a big way. And I think that the Night King knows about the Three-Eyed Raven's ability to time travel. And I think that's what makes Bran such a priority for him is that there's potential for Bran to go back and somehow reverse things. Now, why wouldn't Bran just do this right away? Well, there might be unintended consequences, right? When they escape from the Three-Eyed Raven's cave, They do it through Bran's time travel partially, but it also results in Hodor being changed for life and in Hodor's death. So I think that it's a last resort type time travel thing. Okay, it doesn't answer everything. The biggest question that it doesn't answer is why it's the Night King himself that has to kill Bran. And that leads you down to an internet rabbit hole where perhaps Bran is the Night King. That theory is a a little out there. We don't necessarily have time to get through all of it today, but it's a question to keep in mind as we go forward. I, I don't know if I agree with you to the full extent here, but I think... Yeah, come at, come at me. Poke some no, holes in I, this. I think, I think the thing that appeals to me about this is that it brings a couple threads together. The idea that the Night King would want to take out Bran as soon as possible if Bran can go back and reverse things is, well, he would want to take out the reset button because what's the point of winning a battle if Bran can just go back and redo the whole thing? And it also brings together the dangling thread of the Hodor episode is that that was a key moment, but I think we've wondered if that's foreshadowing more. I think about it in terms of like the wildfire in King's Landing. It was really cool when Tyrion used it at the Blackwater, but ultimately, in retrospect, that was just a hint in advance of Cersei using it to even greater means uh, to blow up the Sept of Baelor. So could Bran's Hodor moment just be the precursor to a broader moment of Bran going back in time. I think there's a reason that as the cave is being overrun, of all the places he could have taken Bran, the Thread Raven specifically took Bran to the Winterfell Yard so he could observe what meddling in time means. I think there has to be some sort of payoff to that. However, to your theory, are you not satisfied by the memories idea? I think it could probably be both, right? Just because the Night King 
is worried about Bran going back in time doesn't mean he doesn't also want to destroy the memories. I think that's a compelling reason. I, I, I do think that the memory idea is real and part of it, but I do think the two things that stand out in my, in my mind are that Bran's ability to time travel does not seem to be at an end yet. I think that it will play a role going forward and that Bran's explanation doesn't fully make sense. It's still does not click in my mind why it has to be the Night King and why he has to kill Bran so soon. And I think that we don't have all the information yet to answer all the questions, but I think we'll get it as the series goes on. Here's another potential way to poke a hole in that idea. What if the Night King doesn't show up in this battle? What if we don't see the Night King at all? Bran's gambit fails. How would that change your idea of, well, maybe he's not so worried about Bran traveling back in time. Maybe he doesn't need to kill Bran personally. Would that bolster your case or actually uh, answer some of the questions you were concerned about? I, I mean, I, I think it's possible that the Night King doesn't show up just because we haven't seen him, but that'd be a real tough one for Bran. And we know that Bran can go back and see the past. So when he says that the Night King has come for many, many three-eyed ravens, I believe that he's telling the truth there and it would make sense that the Night King would also come for this three-eyed raven. I can't believe we're talking about a giant battle potentially being reversed by time travel in this pop culture weekend and it's not about Avengers Endgame. So many parallels. And we'll talk about Avengers Endgame uh, in a minute. But first, uh, now that we've discussed the theory of the week, we're moving on to Keys to the Game, the segment where we introduce the player or the character we think will play a central role this episode and offer three notes for how they can achieve their ambitions. My key players this week are the dragons because I think dragon deployment from Danny and John is going to be crucial to whether they succeed in this battle. My first key is, will they attack right away, mowing down whites like we saw they could do with ease north of the wall, or will they hold the dragons in reserve, fearful of another javelin toss? And I think exercising caution, at least at the start of the battle, probably makes sense. Just because these are such powerful weapons, you don't want to exhaust them too early because lose another dragon and the battle might be lost before it really even begins. I think they have the defenses on the ground to try and at least make life difficult for the army of the dead to start. And remember, that's just to bide time until hopefully the Night King shows himself in the godswood. So I think it would probably be smart, like John seems to indicate last episode, to hold the dragons to protect Bran. And, you know, I'm sorry for the Unsullied and Dothraki who are going to face the brunt of the Night King's assault at that point, but that probably makes the most sense keeping the overall battle strategy in mind. Key number two. Will we see a dragon versus dragon battle? This gets at what we talked about last week about Danny's dragons maybe not being able to fight as well in the north if they're at all sluggish because of the cold. Do you think we're going to see a dragon versus dragon battle in this episode, Riley? No, because we just haven't seen Viserion and the Night King, and I'm still just not convinced that they show up. And key number three, and I think this is the most exciting part about the dragons in this episode, is John should ride Rhaegal. We've seen him on foot in all of the teaser trailers. We've seen him drawing his sword. We know he obviously likes to fight best in hand-to-hand combat on the ground, but I think there's a reason, even beyond confirming his Targaryen heritage, that Jon rode Rhaegal in episode one. And even over the course of that short flight, he seemed to gain an understanding of how to get Rhaegal to do what he wanted. It seemed like those creatures bonded a bit, so he could easily start fighting 
hand to hand. And then I want to see John ride Rhaegal for battle purposes and not just for like a joy ride to the mountains. So he and Danny could have some alone time together. I think John on Rhaegal happens. My key to the game is kind of a off the wall pick. It's Beric Dondarrion. My first reason for picking him is that in the books, Beric is actually dead. He died giving what was called the kiss of life to resurrect another character. And considering that he's no longer around in the books, he's not going to play a role in the end game to the books. I think it's highly likely that he doesn't have an end game in the show either. And he could give the kiss of life to a different character and resurrect someone in this episode potentially. My second key is that he's our only current connection to the Lord of Light. And I wonder if that'll play out in some way in this episode. The Lord of Light has been curiously absent for most of the season. You know, we believe that Melisandre will eventually come back and kind of give us that connection again. But as far as the prince that was promised and everything else that goes along with the Lord of Light, he's it right now. And finally, going along with the first key with the kiss of life, he is the single person that I believe will die in this episode. So RIP Beric, I I think his time has come. It's interesting that both of our selections were, for lack of a better term, fire-based creatures. I chose the dragon. You chose the guy who can use a magic word to light his sword on fire. And I would guess there will be a lot of fire in this episode between the dragons, between lighting the trench, between Beric. I I wonder if the Hound even has some sort of fire-involved plot, like his last big battle, the Blackwater. So I think given that this is the clash of ice and fire, uh, we're going to see a lot of that this episode. But mentioning Beric, mentioning that you think he's the character most likely to die in this episode, brings us to our last segment. And normally we offer just a couple predictions each, but we figured for a battle this grand involving so many characters, I think it's being advertised as the most characters in a single episode. We're going to do a lightning round of every single character and whether we think they're going to live or die at the end of this episode. Because let's face it, that's one of the main things we care about. Yeah, We're going to split the characters into tiers from the characters we think are the safest to the characters who really uh, should begin preparing for either the afterlife or some time spent in the Night King's army. And you wrote about this in a piece with our own Miles Surrey on the website this week, where you looked at both Avengers Endgame and the Game of Thrones episode and split characters into tiers. So we're going to use those tiers and maybe I'll disagree with you at some places. If I think a character is either more likely to die or less likely to die than you do. So why don't you introduce the first tier for us of characters you think are the safest? All right. So our first tier, we called this the plot armor secured tier. And we had Jon Snow, we had Daenerys, Tyrion, Bran, and the Night King. I think that all of those characters, we can just mark them safe. They are too important to the end game. I don't think that they'll die. Zach, do you disagree? Mostly no. One of the reasons you laid out in your piece is that when George R. R. Martin originally pitched Game of Thrones back in 1993, he said in his outline that five characters would span the story from start to end. And four of those five characters were John, Danny, Tyrion, and Bran. So it makes sense for them to survive. And obviously the Night King isn't going to die yet because he's the big bad. If one character from this group is in danger, I think it would be Tyrion, though. Not Bran, even though he's the bait. Not Jon and Danny, even though they're going to be fighting in the fray of it. But I think if the show is going for a really shocking death, 
it could be Tyrion. He talked with Danny last episode about wanting to fight, and she said, no, you have to go to the crypts because that's where it's safest. And if something horrible happens in the crypts, like, you know, it would be one thing if Gilly dies in the crypts, and it'd be one thing if Varys dies in the crypts. Those are important characters, but they're not central. So if there's going to be a true shocker down there, I think it could be Tyrion dying. I think it would be a really sad but Thrones-esque twist for Danny to try and keep him alive by sending him to the crypts, and that actually is what kills him. I agree that if any of these five are in even a little bit of danger, it's Tyrion. I just think that there's still too much to do. He had, in this last episode, a, a kind of cryptic conversation with Bran with him camera cut away and I think he might have learned something from Bran that could come into play later and he also has a lot of plot and character development that potential when things move south with Cersei and King's Landing and everything else going on there so if he dies I'd be pretty shocked let's move on to tier two because I think you have some shocking deaths here which maybe fit my Tyrion criteria uh yeah so in tier two these are characters who are in mild danger. We don't think that they'll die, but you could see it. Uh, we put in this tier Sansa, Sam, Jamie, Varys, and Arya. I kind of think that Arya is in a little bit of danger, except for the fact that Melisandre said that they would meet again, which is why I don't have her in more danger. It feels like her arc is sort of coming close to completion, but I think that she'll make it. She's also one of those characters that George R. R. Martin highlighted in his original outline. The thing with Arya is it would really be an indictment of faceless man training if she dies in her first battle. I don't know if that matters at this point, but that would be bad for the Bravosi. Yeah, it'd be tough, but the other thing to consider is I don't think the faceless men train for battle. I think they train for like sneak assassination. You know, they kind of they cut your throat from behind. I don't know if they're necessarily in the field with thousands of fighters at once. That's a fair point. Why did you place Varys this high? I wonder if the possible theory holds. I think it's perhaps not likely to happen, but is a potentiality is the whole battle. The preparations out front are kind of a trick and like 95% of the deaths are the folks in the crypt. I think there could be a slaughter down there with very few warriors up top dying. What makes you think Varys is going to stay safe? Well, I could see that. You know, we still have the scene from the trailer where Arya is running that looked like she might have been down in the crypts. So there definitely could be a catastrophe down there. The reason I kind of feel confident about Varys is that he really didn't get any kind of send-off or really any screen time at all in the last episode. And it felt like if this is his time, you would give him a little bit of shine before he goes home. I think that's a smart point, but leads into the next character, who is Jamie, because I would think Jamie is a lot more likely to die in this episode than you are, mainly because he did have those moments. He made amends with Bran. He bonded one last time with Tyrion, and he knighted Brienne, which felt like a culmination of their long and beautiful arc. Jamie has said before that he plans to die in the arms of the woman he loves. What if he dies fighting next to and in the arms of Brienne, whose command he came north to serve under? Here's the thing. I I'm sorry, Brienne and Jamie shippers. I do not think that Jamie loves Brienne. I don't think that Brienne loves him. I think that they have a relationship that's based on a mutual understanding that they have for each other. They are the two characters that have seen each other clearly, even as they have put up so many defenses between themselves and the world. 
they're vulnerable around each other. But that's not romantic. It's not the same as when Jamie said that he wants to die in the arms of the woman he loves. I don't think that's really what he meant, and I don't think that that's a prophecy that portends anything for him here. My reason for thinking that Jamie is more safe than not, and again, this is a tier where we we could see them die. It's possible someone dies in this tier. My reason for thinking Jamie is relatively safe, though, is that when things presumably move south, I believe that he has a huge role to play with Cersei. There is in the books the prophecy that the Valonqar or little brother will kill Cersei. That could be Jamie, And I just think that there's too much going on for him to die here. Counterpoint. They haven't actually mentioned the Valonqar theory on the show. That's in true. fact, when we saw Cersei's flashback to her encounter with Maggie the Frog, that was the one line they left out. Maybe they don't plan on fulfilling that and have Cersei meeting her end in a different way. I just think it would be so poetic. And uh, we'll talk about Brienne in a second because you have her on a more dangerous tier. But I think a lot of people are expecting Brienne to die and Jamie to live just because of the importance he has, like you said, in the South going forward. But I could see that dynamic flip-flopping. I agree with you that Sansa and Sam are probably safe just because I see them Having bigger roles going forward, I could see Sansa ruling the whole country by the end. And Sam, as we've talked about before, he needs to survive to write the story. He's mentioned those Citadel books way too many times, too, for him to not somehow find something in there. I guess you could say that maybe Gilly or someone else will find something, but it feels like that's Sam's role. Let's move on to the next tier. Who you got? So this tier, kind of uh, the third tier of five tiers. So this is, you know, moderate danger, getting hot. Uh, we have, we group the dragons together, even though I don't think that all the dragons have the same death odds. And then we put Bronn in there, who may or may not arrive at Winterfell, and Gillian, Baby Sam in there. So I think Drogon's potential death is rightfully in this tier. That would be such a cool f- moment if Drogon falls here. Maybe our theory about the dragons not being able to fight the North actually comes to effect here because Danny has had the strongest bond with Drogon this whole time. She's been defined by her dragons since the moment they hatched at the end of season one. How would she adjust? I think that would have a fascinating wrinkle as we enter the back half of season eight. We're really monsters because I think it would be cool if Drogon dies too. We're like rooting for Drogon to die. I think that the Mother of Dragons has been a little bit Mad Queenish early in this season, and I'm wondering if her dragon dies. Viserion's obviously with the Night King. Rhaegal is bonding with Jon. She would essentially have no dragons anymore, and it could mellow her out, and I think it could really be a huge growth point for her character. That's why we think it's so cool. It really would put Danny in a situation that we haven't seen her in since season one. No dragons. And I think if we're doing a ranking just of the dragon likelihood, I think Viserion's 100% safe just because he's the Night King's steed. I think Rhaegal is also probably safe because he has to have these moments with Jon that they haven't really experienced yet. And even if Jon rides him in battle this time, they're not going to give Jon a dragon in episode one, have him ride it in battle in episode three, and then kill him in the same episode. I don't think that would happen. So if this episode is going to kill one of them, it kind of has to be Drogon, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think Viserion and Rhaegal are safe. It's really Drogon is the one in this tier. And now these tiers start getting larger as we descend into more likely to die. You have a whole bunch in group four. Who are they? So we called this group as safe as the Crips group, which is to say, not safe. We put Missandei, Grey Worm, Lyanna Mormont, Jan Royce, The Hound, Gendry, 
Davos, and Tormund. Big list. One commonality that they all have is that, unlike Varys, they all sort of had their moments of potential culmination last episode. Yes. Well, except Jan Royce, but I think... If, well, if, yeah. <laughs> he's just he's just around. Poor Jan Royce, like... 12 other characters are going to die in this episode and Jan Royce could die and everyone would completely forget that he fell. One character I disagree with you on here is Grey Worm because we still have one group to go. This is group four out of five. If I had to pick a single character to die in this episode, it would be Theon. Number two would be Grey Worm who told Missandei he was going to sail with her to the island and the moment he opened his mouth to say that, I was like, yep, he's a goner. Yeah, making retirement plans as you're going into a battle is just about the worst thing you can possibly do to ensure your safety. But the reason I put Grey Worm and Masandi in the same tier is that I believe that one of them will live. And I, my initial reaction was the same as yours. Grey Worm is doomed. I do think, though, I can see an endgame where it's Missy who dies and Grey Worm lives and he ends up going to Noth where she said they're peaceful islanders, they can't protect themselves, and he can, in her memory, provide defense to that island and to those people and find something rewarding to do. If it's Grey Worm that dies, I don't know what Miss Sandy does at the end of the season. So I kind of have them actually neck and neck, even though Grey Worm is out on the front lines and seemingly in more danger. From a storytelling perspective, I almost see the other way making more sense. I think this group contains a bunch of sad deaths, and that will probably be a theme we see during this episode is a lot of really emotional deaths. Like Davos has been a favorite character of mine of a lot of people's for many seasons now. He's maybe the closest thing to an everyman on the show. He's the conscience. He keeps claiming he's not a fighter. I almost wonder if that belies some inner strength he has and if you know he survived the Blackwater, he survived the Battle of the Bastards, could he survive again this week? I think I'm a little more on the side that he'll survive, but I'm almost afraid to do that because then I'll jinx it and one of my favorite <laughs> characters will perish. I really, really want him to survive because when Melisandre comes back, we know that there are so many characters that have an axe to grind with her, but none more so than Davos. He has promised to execute her on sight the moment he sees her. And so that tension is crucial going forward. That said, I do still think the Onion Knight's in danger. And then we have some other fan favorites in this group too. Liana Mormont, Tormund Giantsbane, who, if anything, have been raised in prominence just because their characters seem so popular. So I think it would be an expected move, perhaps on the show's part, to kill them off as a way of inflating the emotional toll of this episode. Yeah, I, I think that Liana, you know, Jorah said that she's the future of House Mormont, but I, I assume that we'll get some more houses to become extinct before the show is done and Tormund. The one reason I don't have him in the even more danger tier is that he is the only connection we have to the wildlings and the wildlings have been a really good symbol of the way that humanity can turn on itself and not focus on bigger, larger problems. And once you lose him, other than Gilly, who's kind of removed from the rest of the wildlings, there are no other wildlings left. So I think he's actually kind of important. But again, this is tier four. All of these people are in danger. But not quite as much danger as tier five, where at least these characters might have a semblance of safety. Tier five, you don't think so. Tier five, you've titled Joining the Night King's Army. Joining the Night King's Army. Okay, let's go through these guys one by one. Theon, you said that he is your number one death. I think I'm, other than Beric, inclined to agree with you here. It really feels like his arc has come to complete fruition. He saved Yara. He's come back. He 
Sansa embraced him. It just feels like it's the end of the line for Theon. And he volunteered to be the main defender in the spot they're trying to bring the Night King. Probably won't go well, especially if those hints we saw of Jon maybe fighting in the Godswood come to fruition. That would mean the Ironborn defenders possibly fell. And it would be a really fitting spot for Theon to die, I think. Yes. The whole idea of his Stark and ironborn identities sort of fusing coming in the godswood would be really symbolic this winterfell was the place of his greatest crimes going back to season two so him dying here would make total sense to me next on the list we have brienne i really feel like her getting knighted her flashing that big beautiful smile felt like a send-off for her i she's on the front lines as well and i don't feel good about it Okay, so we were talking about this last night, and I actually came up with a new theory to disagree with you. And maybe it's wishful thinking. It probably is wishful thinking. But hear me out. At the end of the day, if one of the heroes wins the Iron Throne, or even there's a new sort of government system, they're going to need a Kingsguard or a Queensguard. Brienne will be Lord Commander of that Kings or Queensguard following in Jamie's footsteps. And remember all the way back when Joffrey was still kicking. And he opens up the Book of Brothers and looks at all the achievements the previous Kingsguard members had and turns to Jamie's page and looks at him and says, you know, why don't you have any accomplishments written in here, uncle? And Jamie's sort of upset by it, upset by his lack of a legacy at this point. So I think her, Brienne's last shot in the series is going to be opening the Book of Brothers, taking a quill in hand and starting to scratch out Jamie's accomplishments on his page, I think that would be such a beautiful ending to this story that maybe hit its last moment uh, in last episode, but I think it could have a coda still to come. I love how excited you are to deliver that theory, and I also love that theory. The reason I still have Brienne in the most dangerous tier is that I do feel like she has just completed her character arc, and she would kind of be hanging around with the heroes for the next few episodes until she got her chance to do so. Whereas in contrast, Jamie, I think, has a lot to do once the action moves south. So I still don't feel great about Brienne. That said, Brienne is Lord Commander of the Kings or Queen's Guard is awesome. I hope it happens. So you love the theory and it's going to be completely wiped out because you're convinced Brienne's going to die. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think that any of these people are necessarily 100% because I never feel 100% confident of anything on Thrones. But I just feel, I have a very bad feeling about Brienne. That big smile felt like a real swan song. And speaking of swan songs, I think Pod, who's next on this list, had a literal swan song at the end of last episode when he had that just beautiful rendition of Jenny's song. But it really feels like he's done. I've been listening to Jenny's song on loop for the last week. It's so good. Uh, It's so good. But I kind of agree with you. I think... Pod has proved himself to be a good fighter, as we saw in the yard last time with Brienne's sort of gruff approval of his progression. I think he's going to take a lot of whites with him before he goes, but I think this is probably the end of the line for him. Yeah, the one thing is he could hold on and eventually become a knight, but they just played that card on Brienne, so it feels like without that, I I just don't know how Pod makes it out. The next character you have on the list is Jorah, 
And I'm not so convinced about Jorah, if only because we see him at the end of the last episode riding out with the Dothraki. So it looks like he's going to be on the absolute front lines in the initial engagement with the Night King's army. But that separates him from Daenerys because Daenerys, as we believe, is going to be hanging back with her dragons, maybe fluttering over the godswood. I think Jorah has to die sacrificing himself for her, which is a weird thing to say because Game of Thrones has proved itself not to engage in these moments of perfect resonance, but I think it's kind of veering more toward that way over recent seasons. So I would be pretty surprised if Jorah dies with like no more interactions with Danny, and I'm not quite sure how they interact given the geography of the battle as we currently understand it. I mean, I feel like Daenerys could move around and and the scenario that you described could easily happen in this episode. We have 82 minutes to kind of move these characters. I also think that Jorah's conversation with Danny, where he admits that she made the right choice making Tyrion hand felt like him saying goodbye to me. So I, I just think Jorah is in as much danger as anybody. Next on the list, you have Ed, poor Ed, Ed. who gave one of my favorite underrated lines last episode, telling Sam and John, the last of us needs to burn the other two. He goes back so far and has always been such a welcoming presence on the screen. The only reason I could see him possibly surviving is to rebuild the Night's Watch once this entire threat has passed. But he seems like the kind of character who maybe will go out and that's a pretty emotional moment, only fitting for his character to be overshadowed by an even more emotional death later in the episode. I agree. I I do think that him rebuilding the Night's Watch as Lord's Commander would be great. But we also have to consider maybe there won't be a Night's Watch after this because they could defeat the Night King and the White Walker threat for good. There'd be no need for a wall. What purpose would the Night's Watch really serve at that point? So. Ed, who has always been a little bit in the background anyways, feels like an obvious death candidate in this episode. Next up, this one is is tough to put on here, but uh, I have Ghost as one of our most likely deaths. He appeared last episode for the first time since season six. We we saw like his foot on the side of the screen. Possibly a cardboard cutout of Ghost, uh, but you know, he was there. It counts. And I think anytime he is on screen now is just bad news. I feel like they're reminding you that he exists because this might be a big moment for him and not in a good way. The annoying thing about him not being on screen was we didn't see him on screen. But the positive about that was a no news is good news sort of thing. At least he was alive. Unlike every other direwolf at this point, I guess Nymeria is still alive in the Riverlands, but the last direwolf to go was Summer against the Night King's army. And I could see some sort of similar death here. I wonder what role Ghost has to play here, especially if John ends up riding a dragon. Is he just sort of running off on his own? John's cheating on his faithful pet Poor uh, Ghost. With, <laughs> with no word uh, otherwise. But yeah, I could see, I, I'm again not 100% convinced here, but I could see Ghost going out. I mean, Summer went out in a literal blaze of glory, and I could see a similar uh, development here. Last on the list, you have Barrack. Barrack's a goner, sorry. Uh, but I think the question with Barrack, unlike a lot of the other characters here, is what does he do either as he dies or the moment after he dies? Can he breathe life back into someone else where everyone else, basically, they could fall and rejoin the Night King's army, which would be a spectacle to behold. But Barrack could still provide some sort of support for the good guys, even as he falls. Yeah, as we said, Beric, who is no longer alive in the books, just feels like he'll obviously at some point die this season. Uh, if he gives gives the kiss of life to somebody, I hope it is the Hound. They were 
paired together in the teaser trailer for this episode, so we know they're around each other. And that would give us the chance for a Clegane Bowl that is an undead Clegane Bowl. Just kind of a nice little wrinkle there going forward. And one last thing to note about this list, too, is we're not you know fully sure about any of these characters. But remember last season, the Beyond the Wall episode, I was convinced, absolutely convinced, that John was going to be the only member of that group to survive. I thought it was going to be the last hero parable reborn, and that Jorah was going to die, Gendry was going to die, the Hound was going to die, Beric was going to die, so on and so on. The only named character in that episode to die, besides Viserion, was Thoros of Mir, who is probably the least important of the group. I would highly doubt that would recur again because this battle has been built up so much. And at this point, characters kind of need to start dying. There are only three episodes left afterward. It would be, I think, a pretty underwhelming episode if only one or two characters die again. I think we're in for a bloodbath. Yeah, I was absolutely shocked when Beric survived Beyond the Wall for the exact same reasons that we think he'll die in this episode. I thought that he was going to die last season. And I don't think it can play out the same way. I totally agree with you. I think we'll have a lot of deaths this episode. So who knows? Maybe thrones will zig when we expect them to zag and characters will survive again. But we don't think so. We'll be back next week to talk about it. But that's it for us this time. As always, don't forget to rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or theories you want us to break down, write into the recapables at gmail.com. Be sure to read all of our written coverage this week. Riley, as we said, broke down the odds of various characters dying, and I examined storytelling clues from previous battles between the living and the dead. Of course, tune in to Talk the Thrones with Mal, Jason, and Chris, going live on Twitter every Sunday night after the episode airs. I'm sure there will be tears this episode as they provide instant analysis. And we'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy episode three, and try not to jump too high out of your seat if dead Ned Stark rises in the crypt.